programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic, with providers Drs. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter, and PA Lindsay Humes, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery. 7537880. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Philip Barlow, USU professor and Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU, uh, says that climate change actions are now being taken by legal, social, political, and economic interests. Too often, though, he says, religion is excluded from the public forum, despite its being a crucial aspect of what motivates a considerable portion of humanity. He says it's important to understand that religion and environment are important spheres that have a lot more to do with each other than they realize. Uh, Dr. Barlow and others at USU have organized a day-long symposium. It's happening today. It's called God and Smog, the Challenge of Preserving Our Planet. There will be panels of scholars and religious leaders confronting environmental issues. And that panel is happening uh, today. It uh, started uh, moments ago and it will run till 5 o'clock. You can still uh, catch most of it if you're interested. It's free and open to the public. It's happening in the John M. Huntsman School of Business in the Perry Pavilion there on the USU uh, campus. The symposium is part of the Tanner Talk series hosted by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and underwritten by the Tanner Foundation. And uh, we are pleased to uh, welcome in uh, three participants in the panel discussions uh, today. Dr. David Haberman is Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University at Bloomington. He specializes in Hinduism and teaches courses on religion, ecology, and environmentalism. Dr. Margaret Barker uh, is an independent uh, scholar. Uh, she's developed an approach to biblical studies now known as temple theology, and since 1997 has been part of the symposium Religion, Science, and the Environment. And our third guest is Anuttama Dasa, who's a Vaishnava Hindu teacher. Uh, he's been involved in uh, teaching about Vaishnavism in relation to the environment, and he serves as a governing body commissioner for the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Here's part one of our conversation. I just want to quote uh, something from uh, Philip Barlow, one of the organizers of uh, the conference. Dr. Barlow says, Too often, religion is excluded from the public forum, despite its being a crucial aspect of what motivates a considerable portion of humanity. He goes on to say, The conference is designed to help us understand that religion and environment are important spheres that have a lot more to do with each other than they realize. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir with the three panelists here, but I, I wonder... Somebody like to to jump in and talk about the, I guess the overall public view of this. Uh, sometimes it's very separate spheres, right? Religion versus environment, science versus religion. Um, and the three of you work in in seeing those interconnections. I teach a course at Indiana University called Religion, Ecology, and Self. And one of the questions that I ask students is, do you find it odd to see the words religion and ecology really in the same title? When I first taught this course some 15 years ago, students did raise their hands and report that that was an odd combination to them. Um, I think things are changing so that that has been less the case than it was 15 years ago. I think it, one of the insights is to understand that religion is such a influential force in shaping our sense of values and our, our, our sense of the world, and that any, any solution 
to the environmental crises cannot just be some scientific technological fix, um, but it, it has to be something much deeper than that, which will bring religion into the picture, both in terms of understanding the worldviews that has got us into the mess that we're in today. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I would say we're beginning to understand that we have our the relationship between the human and non-human world. We really got that wrong and need to rethink that. Some of that certainly will involve um, certain modes of science, but th that that issue I think really begs religious response. So again, both in understanding a worldview as well as um, considering practices and approaches that might help us get out of the crisis in which we find ourselves. Mm. Dr. Barker, I wonder what you would say on that. Worldview, very important, right? <clears throat> and religion has a lot to do with the worldview, and that has an effect on the environment. It, indeed, it does. I was raised in an evangelical tradition of the Christian church, and in my formative years, I don't think care for creation or anything like that was ever something we talked about, discussed. Religion was simply a personal matter. It was a relation between you and your savior. And there was a, nothing was really expressed, but it was almost as though they were saying that concern for the environment was paganism and we don't do that sort of thing. Uh, that has changed dramatically, I have to say. But I do understand the position that some people are still in, particularly in the conservative evangelical wings of the church. They're still uncertain because of the way maybe they were taught in their Sunday schools, things like that. Is this an area that we ought to be going into? Is this creation something that is going to pass? Is it something that we distance ourselves from? And this emphasis on the personal relationship seemed to exclude an awful lot that we now realize should have been included. Mm. It's very different now, but I have vivid memories of my own childhood, my own raising, mm. yeah. That personal relationship, you say, could exclude concern for the environment. Uh, it's been my observation that at least some strange of, of Christianity, uh, you know, take a, I guess, a second coming view, a millenarian view that uh, God's going to take care of everything Yes, I why, don't. Why worry? Well, I don't come from yeah. that particular part of the spectrum, so I couldn't speak with any expertise on it. Um, the great shift in my thinking came as I discovered uh, there was rather more to the church than the evangelical strand I'd been brought up in, and I got to know Catholics, and then the great joy of my life, I got to know the Orthodox Church. And there, of course, creation is just woven through everything that they do. So it was not at all a surprise to me that the head of the Orthodox Church was this great pioneer in Christian well, we don't call it environment thinking, it's actually creation thinking. Um, and this is something in which he has been, uh, the, the head of the Orthodox Church has been a very important pioneer. And I learned such a lot listening to him and just seeing how he, well, how he operated using a rather secular term. Hmm. Let me turn to uh, Anuta Madasa. What's, what's your view of this, this, this connection between religion and, and the environment? Well, <clears throat> I speak as a Vaishnava 
Hindu. There's Hinduism is really a broad family of, uh, of different faiths or traditions. So within the Vaishnava tradition, which is a monotheist tradition, the idea is that if we understand there is a personal God, then we should be even more protective of the earth because we understand who owns everything. And the concept is there that we're all spiritual beings. We're passing through this world. We may live for 50, 60, 100 years, but it's a temporal existence for us, for our soul, which is moving on towards God. But that while we're here, we should understand it's not my property. The earth is not for me. The competition between the East and the West or the North and the South or the capitalists or the communists, we would say in an ultimate sense, is all a misuse of our energy. And we really have more important things to do. But while we're here, we should take the things that God gives to us as gifts, but not think that it's a question of uh, just try to exploit or conquer or take as much of the energy as we can, but to live simply and, and, and use our time for spiritual practices. So it's really a sense of it, it's the world that's sacred, and we should treat it as such. Mm. So this would be a personal belief, uh, right? Um Interacting then with you know do you do interreligious work, um, is this something that you want to push out there? Something that you would like others to adopt in terms of this? Yes, actually, David has a t- has uh, done some seminars at uh, a, a community called the Govardhan Eco Village in India, which is one of about several dozen eco-friendly rural communities that my organization has established around the world, specifically to try to. Uh, develop sustainable communities and to look at how if we live closer to nature uh, we can actually find that uh, our our needs are provided in in a very wholesome way holistic way so that would be one of the things that we would hope to try to bring forward now i i would be amiss if i say everyone within the tradition is is following strictly in fact one of the things we're asked to talk about tomorrow some of the challenges I think the challenges are always the difference between our ideals and our practice, mm. but, but at least in theory, and I, I would argue from our tradition is very deeply, a very deep aspect of the tradition that uh, if, if we're spiritually conscious, if we're a God-conscious, God-loving type of person, then we have to be an environmentalist. Mm. Let's turn back to Dr. Haberman. Um, you said earlier that we've got it wrong, this, this interrelationship between the human world and the non-human world. Could you give me an example or two, and and then how do we, how do we correct that? I think that we are living uh, at a time where we have played out some of the more extreme implications of transformations that occurred back in the 16th century, with regard to religion as well as science. So that uh, what I'm suggesting is that both a, a dominant religious worldview that separated the human from everything else on the planet um, was paralleled with developments within science. Uh, and the result has been what many have called a, a disenchantment of the world, but an understanding that that values, sentience, any kind of presence of spirit is exclusively located in the human, and everything beyond that is considered to be uh, kind of a, a dramatic background to the human drama or dead matter to be used by human beings for our purposes. 
I think that that worldview, and it does get expressed both in terms of mechanistic science or mechanical philosophy, whatever one wants to call that, as well as certain religious traditions that developed along parallel cultural lines. Um, there, there were some benefits to that, but I think that we're understanding now that we cannot continue and that we are literally killing ourselves as we're killing the world in support systems. Um, and we're facing an environmental crisis today that can no longer allow at least those of us who want to open our eyes to what's happening to continue a business as usual. Mm. Let me follow up. Um, there is a sense, I think, among a lot of people that um, that perhaps we are running out of time for, yeah. for, for, for some of these things. What what would you say? Do you do you you know should we be hopeful about that? And uh, especially from the point of view of a you know religion and how religion can intersect here. Well, I would. I'm not sure what running out of time really means in any detail. No one has a crystal ball. So, the the question is how how are we going to live in some responsible fashion? I mean, that's really what what it all depends upon. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, there are clearly indicators that, that we are moving toward a, a time in which the crisis is, is going to, to be quite challenging. Um, climate change is, is one of those areas, but, but we could look at the exponential growth in so many pollutants on the planet. So we're polluting our water um, sources. We're, we're polluting the air. We're polluting the soil. We are, so I would say that is where that sense of urgency and running out of time comes from. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the questions that religious communities are asking today. What, where is our place in the crises as um, those who identify with particular religious traditions or religious practices? And religion has always asked those big questions. Who am I? Who am I really? What is the nature of the world? And what is my relationship to the larger world? Those are deeply religious questions. They're also environmental questions. So that um, those involved in environmental movements are really thinking about the same sort of thing. What is our responsibility to the world? Uh, is a big question that is asked both by uh, environmentalists as well as those involved in a variety of religious traditions. Mm. And that does in, the, any answer to that does involve a conception of the world. And a conception of the world is a vital component of every religious tradition. Mm. And that's part of, you, you've already mentioned it, what this conference is about. It's a consideration of ourselves. So there's a self-identity and the world. There's a world conception and the relationship between them. So for me, religion does involve a great deal of relationality. And in a relationship, you're thinking about who you are in relationship to the other and how do we think of the other? How do we treat the other? What is the value of the other? And in this case, I'm expanding the other, not just to be other human beings, but to be other life forms that all life on this planet depends upon. Hmm. Several issues to raise there. I wonder if either of you, uh, Dr. Barker, uh, Madasa, uh, want to comment on that, specifically this, this question of what is my place as, as, as a religious person? What is my place in, uh, in this discussion? 
or the bigger question, what is my place in the world and how, mm-hmm. how the environment connects in? Yes. I think the traditional Christian approach to this is focused on how you understand the figure of Adam. Uh, Right at the beginning of Genesis, we've got the story of Adam and he's created. And then we're given the um, a brief sketch of the role of Adam in creation. This is at the end of Genesis chapter one. Now, Adam doesn't mean a man. It means a human being. Okay, it's the generic. There's a separate Hebrew word that means a male person. So this is humans in general, and how do they relate to the world? And unfortunately, the Hebrew terms that are used at the end of Genesis are all capable of more than one translation. And what has come through in the translations of the, or the English translations of the Bible doesn't reflect the way those words were understood, for example, in the time of Jesus. And so we have inherited, certainly in the Protestant Christian traditions that use the English Bible, the King James Bible, things like that, this picture of Adam as created as created to rule and to dominate and to to trample and, and generally, you know, to be the boss. And then the first um, kind of greening of this Adam picture was when that particular picture of Adam was modified just a little and Adam becomes the steward of creation. And you hear this a lot in Christian environment discourse, Adam is the steward. Now that implies a business relationship. You're kind of managing this for profit, you're managing it responsibly, it's very much a business relationship. But in fact that idea of Adam as the steward Mm. or having a business relationship to the creation is also alien to the earliest Hebrew tradition in the Old Testament. And if you look at how those Hebrew words describing Adam and his role, if you look at how they were understood by the Jewish teachers in the time of Jesus, um, how they have come through in Jewish tradition and indeed some early Christian tradition, Adam is not the steward, he's not the ruler, he is the high priest who leads the worship of all creation. And the relationship is essentially a religious one. He is the one who leads the praise, he is the one who makes the offerings, and the whole thing is, it's not a business relationship at all. And Adam, as the great high priest, is the fundamental image that is missing from so much Bible-based creation theology. Hmm, interesting. Anuta Badasa, what, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, just to maybe build on what Dr. Barker was saying, in, in the Hindu tradition, there's no, the, the, the biblical story of Adam and Eve is not part of our tradition, but there's parallels, but there's some unique differences. Um, one is that in, in our tradition, we understand that actually wherever there's life, there's a soul. So even in the animals, even in the plants, there's a soul. And it's understood that, again, paralleling the, the biblical story, but that the individual has a choice to be with God or to separate ourselves from God. And when we choose to do so, then we enter into this realm, this earthly realm. And the human form of life uh, is not unique in that there's spiritual Atma within every life form, as I mentioned, but the human form of life gives us the opportunity to inquire about God, inquire about where have I come from, why is there suffering in the world, why is there death, why is there pain, and p- 
part of that awakening of knowledge is a realization that I'm not the only one here. The human beings are not the only ones here, but the whole world is a place that's created to allow us to reawaken, as David was saying, to reconnect with God. So that if I'm here trying to reconnect with God, but myself, my family, my community, my nation, my industry are meanwhile crushing other beings who are as ultimately as connected to God as I am, I'm kind of undermining any attempt to make progress in life. Therefore, in our tradition, hymns is a very important practice. We try to minimize mm-hmm. violence to any other living beings. Mm. Uh, I want to start with Mark Barker on this, uh, this question. You're involved uh, in a uh, symposium that happens, um, Religion, Science, and the Environment? Yes, I am. I've been involved since 97. Um, I want to get into the, the subject matter. It's interesting that uh, you've, uh, the symposium is focused on uh, water, right? It focused has, on the, yes. the seas. Before I get there, and I want to want to have uh, each of the panel talk about this, um, at least a couple of you have been involved in interreligious work, right? But I wonder, and some people, hopefully a, a small minority, but there, would maybe look askance at the, just the title of the symposium, Religion, Science, Environment. Yeah. <laughs> and would think uh, those are three separate spheres, and we don't think of them uh, together. Obviously, you disagree. You're, you're part of the symposium. Uh, first of all, have you ever uh, – are, are religions such as yourself welcomed in the environmental circles? I guess environmentalists would presumably welcome all the help they could get, but is it – Wholehearted, or uh, well, or, I get. Um, I receive more grudging, invi- or what? Uh, I receive more invitations to speak than I can possibly accept. Mm-hmm. So, um, there are some people who are very eager to hear a Christian perspective on this, which has been sadly missing, because the churches have been involved with all sorts of internal politics, largely, which is very sad. And forty years have slipped by, and it's still politics as usual. And the world has got uh, a more kind of threatened place. Uh, Religion, science and environment, that was, I think, an inspired juxtaposition of um, different disciplines by His All Holiness, the Patriarch. And it wasn't any formal way of saying we are going to relate in this way or that. What he did, he simply invited leading people in all these disciplines, along with the media, they're very important how they report things because that can shape public uh, perceptions. And the most of the symposia were held on a boat, which meant that nobody could go home. And you had to stay and talk to each other. And it was just the informal dis, uh, discussions over breakfast, you know, in the evening, all this kind of thing. And you would find... Um, people from the religion part of the thing, like me, talking to environmentalists, talking to people from the uh, UN environment, things like that. And things rubbed off. There was not, There were obviously formal papers in the um, plenary sessions and things like that. But just as much work was done through informal discussions and realising that we actually needed each other um, politicians and um, economists, for example, were introduced to the possibility of another framework within which to set their questions, namely a moral framework. And a lot of people I discovered that were really quite high up in their organisations had the um, moral perceptions of a junior school child, you know, a nine or ten year old. And 
when you explain things, you know, fairly simply to them and they can see the point of it and see the relevant and they were energized. You could see their eyes light up because they are in many cases just as much <clears throat> worried by the situation, but they cannot see a framework. It's a well-known truth that the, the methods that cause the problem are not likely to be those that will be the solution. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I had a thought there, perhaps we should put U.S. Congress on a ship and... Uh, make it more productive yeah. maybe maybe we've hit upon something here uh david haberman you said earlier that you have you think you've seen a shift in your students in in terms of not compartmentalizing these right well i would say not only i've seen it close up in my students mm-hmm. but i'd say i've seen it in society and one can point to, to look at the way science and religion are coming together, even within uh, religious communities. I might point to uh, the current pope representing some 2 billion Catholics on the planet, um, produced the encyclical called Laudato Si, um, and he took on the name of St. Francis, who has been dubbed the patron saint of environmentalists. And if you read that document, he not only brings together the environmental movement with a social justice movement, but he brings together religion and science. And I think he's an example of a religious figure who does not look at religion and science at odds, but rather uses science Mm -hmm. to come to understand the environmental crises, and yet understands that, again, the crises cannot be dealt with through technology and science alone but rather has to bring the um, human dimension of value, ultimate value, into the discussion. And consideration of ultimate value means that we're moving into the arena of religion. Mm -hmm. Madasa, what what would you say on this? uh, For some, I don't know how many, religion, science, environment would be compartmentalized. Um, first of all, what have you observed? Well, let, let me mention this as a re- response to the two earlier comments. I, I think of the the work of the Mormon philosopher, Dr. Stephen Covey, who talked about we all need to be and we are response-able. We have that opportunity to do so. And I think we talk about particularly the faith element that our various religious traditions, they're all about, in different narratives, helping us overcome our situations, helping us overcome obstacles, helping us deep uh, go deep into our own kind of human capabilities in, in that sense. And I, and I think that in that sense, with the faith and, and environment part is very important because we're talking about how do we overcome the big mess we've dug ourselves into. And then it's natural that religion would be a part of that process because it's telling people we can do better than we have been doing. There is a, a better self, a deeper self, and we have to go within ourselves to kind of bring that out, to say that, okay, there may be certain things that have become uh, habits for us. I remember as a child, my father was a cigar smoker, and watching him uh, roll down the window after uh, wrapping the plastic off his cigar paper and just throwing it out the door. And when I was younger, I'm vegetarian now, but as a young boy, being a vegetarian, and, 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 and I'm a vegetarian now, wasn't then, but uh, walking through the woods with him in hunting season, see how all the, all the hunters, mostly men, they would spend the afternoon in the woods and leave their beer cans around the fire and just basically trash the place because it's easier. 
And it's still easy to do that today. We all can throw our trash out the thing. We all can be over-consuming the resource of the earth. Or we can make a choice, say, this isn't good for me, for my family, for the larger society. I think that's where religion really comes into play because it gives us that that ability to say there are higher choices. We can be response-able. And sometimes we have to put aside our short-term, what seems to be the convenient benefit for what really is the long-term. And again, that's where religion calls us all to do that. So I think that at least that aspect of it is a very important one. Mm. Yeah. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with three of the panelists uh, participating in a day-long symposium, which is happening today. It's called God and Smog, The Challenge of Preserving Our Planet. Scholars and religious leaders confront environmental issues. That uh, panel is happening right now, running till 5 p.m. in the John M. Huntsman School of Business, Perry Pavilion. It's uh, sponsored by the Religious Studies Program and the Department of History. It's free and open to the public. We'll have more with our panel following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Chamber of Commerce 4th Annual Cash Business Women's Conference, presenting keynote speaker Utah's First Lady, Jeanette Herbert, Thursday, October 11th, 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Riverwoods Conference Center. Registration details at cashchamber.com. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Square One Printing for sponsoring our newest program, Undisciplined. Find out how you can become a sponsor by calling 435-797-3215. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, there is a day-long symposium happening on the USU campus today. It's called God and Smog, the Challenge of Preserving Our Planet. Scholars and religious leaders are confronting environmental issues That is uh, sponsored by the Religious Studies Program and the Department of History at USU. And uh, it's a part of the Tanner Talk series hosted by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, underwritten by the Tanner Foundation. And it's happening uh, in the John M. Huntsman School of Business, uh, Perry Pavilion, free and open to public, happening uh, right now until 5 o'clock. Our guests uh, today participating in the uh, conference are Anuttama Dasa, who's a Vaishnava Hindu teacher. He serves as governing body commissioner for International Society of Krishna Consciousness. We're also talking with Dr. Margaret Barker, who's an independent scholar and uh, has uh, been a regular uh, participant in the symposium Religion, Science, and the Environment. And we're also talking with Dr. David Haberman, professor of religious studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Here's part two of our conversation. I want to, uh, to turn to Dr. Haberman. Um, very interesting to be your, your book, River of Love in the Age of Pollution, and the idea of a religious, so going the other way, religious practice being, I guess, interrupted, changed by a change in the environment. In, in this case, pollution of a river. Right. So that book involved, maybe just a frame for that, I would say that we're not only talking about perhaps differences between religious perspectives and scientific perspectives and how those are increasingly coming together in certain contexts today, but I would also say that um, there are differences between different kinds of religions and that every particular society or culture, therefore, will have to 
address the environmental crises in terms of its own religious tradition. There's not, there can't be uh, a one case that fits every situation in religion. So what I'm interested in as a student of religion, and particularly with a focus on religion and ecology, is how that gets worked out in each particular culture. So that book is a study of the Yamuna River, which is a major river running through northern India, draining the Himalayas and ending in the um, Bay of Bengal. And it happens to be a river that runs through New Delhi, the capital of India, a a city of 18 um, million people today or growing beyond that. It's hard to even keep track of what it is. And what I became interested in is how that's a river that has been conceived of as an aquatic form of a goddess that I can trace back textually some 3,000 years. So part of the project was to understand how the world is conceptualized within a particular religious culture. And Yamuna uh, has been important over the years, and in the 16th century, India became extremely important uh, in her association with the Krishna traditions uh, in, in the area that is down stream from Delhi. That's an area that I had done previous research in and was there reading Sanskrit texts with with scholars in that area and came to know that river. And I must say, during the hot season, delighted in swimming that river. And over the years of going back to that site and just observing the river, the pollution in the river increase and increase to the point I wouldn't even dream of swimming in the river, certainly today. I began to to ask those sorts of questions and observe first how the pollution in the river was affecting the religious tradition, the practices, and altering those. And I think in a number of ways, the environment is changing religion in a, in a great number of ways across the planet. But I was interested in that um, and and documented the way that the religious practice was changing as a result of the pollution. But I was also interested in the way the resources of the religious community were being marshaled to resist the pollution in the river, to try to restore the river to uh, a condition of health. And the, the, we, we see religion functioning in the environmental crises in both of those ways, both as, as come, both as being affected by it, um, coming to understand the, the problem, because for this tradition, it was those who couldn't see that divine quality, that sacred nature in the religion were the ones more prone to polluting the river. So somehow the solution had to involve an, a deep understanding and awareness of the sacred dimension of water articulated in this particular cultural context as the body of a goddess. Interesting. Um, I want to uh, bring up with Anuta Madasa and, and uh, Dr. Parker, and uh, Dr. Haberman can chime in as well, uh, a couple of key words that each of you used uh, for Dr. Barker's stewardship. And in, mm. in this case, uh, for, for some people, it had a negative connotation when it came in, right? Mm. The, the, the exploitation more than... Mm. More than um, in some traditions, stewardship is seen as as uh, more of a positive. That that I am. This brings in the other word, responsible, right? That uh, Nutamadasa brought up. Um, so I guess starting with Doctor Doctor Barker, I guess from the faith traditions you've studied, um, 
how does that directly affect people who, who adhere to those beliefs in, in a belief that I am responsible for the environment, right? I, um, I need to care for the environment. How does that direct to the, connect to the religious beliefs? Right. Well, first, I have to say, I don't just study this tradition. I live it. Okay. Um, and, and second, the idea of being uh, responsible for creation would be one of the ways in which we understand the verse again from the beginning of the book of Genesis, that the human being is created as the image of God. And uh, a Christian would see himself or herself as acting um, and being the presence of the divine in that situation. Now, if you consider the terms of um, social responsibility rather than environmental responsibility, Jesus has a parable, the sheep and the goats, and, and Jesus says to people, um, if you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, and he's talking about clothing and feeding and, and caring for them. If you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. So in a situation where you find yourself, you are acting as God's agent. You are a child of God or a son of God, and you take that seriously. Um, and I think that is probably where I would start were I talking, you know, how are we responsible for the creation? But there are so many other areas where the Bible has been taught far too selectively. Uh, the Bible is a very big book. And people sometimes say to me, oh, it's very long, you know, and just means you have to spend more time studying it. But one of the areas where uh, we've had, I think, the biggest distortion is emphasis on the covenant made with Moses, Exodus chapter 24, which is interpreted as though it's a kind of deal between human beings and God. You keep my rules and, and I'll look after you. And it's a deal. And the rules, the Ten Commandments, are all about social interaction. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not tell lies, and this kind of thing. But underlying the Moses covenant in, in the Old Testament is something which has been almost totally neglected, particularly by Protestant biblical scholars, and I speak as one of them. Um, this is the idea of the everlasting covenant, which is mentioned in Genesis chapter 9, the story of Noah, and it's the covenant between God and all living things. And it's known as the everlasting covenant or the covenant of peace. By the time of Jesus, it was called the covenant of loving kindness. And that underlies so much of the Old Testament. And if only we could have Christians thinking within that covenant rather than just the Ten Commandments, I think we could transform things. Very good evidence that at the Last Supper, Jesus was not setting up a new covenant, but was renewing that original creation covenant with every living creature. Hmm. Um, I want to turn to Anit Madasa. Um, anything you'd like to say on what's previously been said, and then I'd like to have you connect up your uh, your beliefs in uh, uh, Vaishnavism um, and how that compels you, leads you to uh, to care of the environment. The, the Vaishnav tradition teaches that this is the world of illusion or maya or the world of forgetfulness of God. So this is a place actually defined in the ancient Sanskrit text. If you want to forget God and if you want to think that you are God or you're a little God or that the world is for you, you get to come in this place. 
and that actual our spiritual identity is one of we're meant to cooperate with God. God's described as the supreme enjoyer and the supreme friend, and we have an important role to play, but that's in terms of a cooperation uh, with, 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 with in, in, in spiritual loving relationships that are there. So to the extent that we really are abusing and exploiting the environment, we would advocate as a direct reflection of our ignorance or misunderstanding of who we are and what our role is to play. Because if we're really understanding, as I mentioned earlier, we're just passing through this world and that we have a spiritual identity it's meant to be a cooperative identity with God, with all the living beings, then we will avoid the tendency to think even that I'm an American and these are our boundaries. I'm a Russian. I don't like Americans. I'm a white male, I don't like this group, I don't like that group, or I'm a black female, whatever. But we see no action spiritual being. And there's a sisterhood and a brotherhood that's there. And as, as the conversations I'm going is going on here, I'm thinking a little bit, reflecting upon you know, recent controversies in the United States with the, with the Me Too movement and the Supreme Court you know, appointments and whatever way we come down. And that has definitely drawn attention to the question of, are there boundaries, should there be more boundaries towards males thinking females are just there for us to enjoy, exploit, grab in a bar, etc. And it's a similar, we would say it's a similar kind of consciousness that whether a male or female, if I'm thinking things are here for me rather than I'm meant to serve others, I'm meant to serve God, I'm meant to serve the environment, I'm supposed to serve the animals and care for the forests and the rivers and all of that, that if we're understanding that, that, that truly is a holistic way of life. But it depends also upon one making a little bit of spiritual progress in our in our love for God, our love for Jesus, whatever our tradition is, our awakening as 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 a Buddhist. And then when we do that, then we're not so dependent upon grabbing and exploiting things. But but when when there's a satisfaction within, then that tendency to exploit and dominate is minimized because there's no need to. But when we as individuals or as a culture, as 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 a gender are not satisfied because our spiritual needs aren't satisfied, then we try to grab whatever we can in terms of matter, dominate it, control it in competition with others, thinking this is how I'm going to be happy. But we see in the world today a lot of times the people that have the most power, the most influence, the most fame, sometimes the most frustrated, the most unhappy, and that we would say is the symptom that that whole understanding is wrong. It's not just a symptom, it's proof. And we really have to go more towards simple or living higher thinking and get in touch with what our real internal needs are. Mm. Dr. Abram, I don't know if there's any response to what's been said here before we move on to the next topic. Well, when I'm listening to what is being said, I suppose what I find a common core in it all is the idea of what I would call all-inclusive love. And I like Dr. Barker's way of saying that's a little bit of of a change of you saying a concern with all living beings, but but it's really the same thing. So what what does all-inclusive love look like? And I think that there's there's a great value that would go far in dealing with the crises, (laughs) Um, whether it's a social crisis or the environmental crises, and particularly if that all-inclusive love um, does not stop at the human non-human boundary, but moves beyond that. And there's again where I think we see different religious worldviews articulating different positions. There. Um, there, there's not such a solid boundary in many religious traditions between the human and non-human. And I'm hearing from Dr. Barker that that there there 
perhaps is not in Christianity either. Certainly historically, there's different ways of interpreting that. Um, so, or another term, and, and I think of society today, that, that a term that I fear is being lost is, uh, or a value that I feel is being lost is compassion. Mm-hmm. And compassion, again, is feeling for others. Um, so that that um, yeah, there, there's a general value that I'm hearing being shared between uh, this Vaishnava tradition and Christian tradition as articulated by Dr. Barker that certainly will have great value in environmental situation. Uh, if you just uh, joined us, we are talking about uh, a panel happening today, God and Smog, the Challenge of Preserving Our Planet. It's put on by the Religious Studies Program, Department of History at Utah State University. Uh, and eight panelists, including uh, the uh, three good people I'm talking to right now, are uh, taking part in that. That began at 9 a.m. and it'll run till 5 p.m. You can still make most of that uh, at the John M. Huntsman School of Business Perry Pavilion on the USU campus, and this event is free and open uh, to the public. We have Dr. Margaret Barker, Dr. David Haberman, and Anuta Madasa with us uh, for another uh, six or seven minutes. Um, I... I expect that some in our audience may be saying this is a wonderful academic discussion. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, to the extent that it doesn't lose me my job or it, it doesn't, uh, you know, affect me adversely, I can go along with what you're saying. Um, I wonder what you would, would say to that, how, how this is all interconnected or because, you know, the, and, and that's directly connected to the politics of this sometimes. That um, you know, let's 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 tap the brakes on any measures to uh, control human-caused uh, climate change because um, some people say, well, we don't know; it's not proved that humans are causing it, um, and it might have adverse economic effects. Of course, in the real world, all of this is interconnected, and um, I don't know. Response from any of you to that to that fictional person who who may well be listening. Well, you've raised difficult issues, um, but but in some sense, you're really asking, I think, two questions to me. That is, what's it all about? What are we really here for? <laughs> and I suppose that, to me, is a question that I will put out to your fictional uh, listener that you've described here is, what are you here for? What are you really here for? And we're hearing about economics, but but I guess are we here just for a job? Are we here to make money? Is that really what it's about, or is there something more? And uh, if if there's again a, a, another word that is woven in the conversation today, it's one of love. And how does one express one love? How does one live love? What does the life of love really look like? And uh, what is the value of a life of love compared to a like a, a life of economic success? Um, economic, we, we hear again and again that environmentalists are pitted, pitted against e- uh, those who are concerned with the economy. W- what, I, I don't really understand that. If there's no quality of life, and if we're talking about e- every question really becomes irrelevant if the house is on fire, and the house is on fire. Um, so that, that I, I'm not sure what money really is going to mean if you're living in a world where you can't breathe uh, breathable air, if you can't drink clean water, if you can't go outside, if temperatures become so extreme, if if weather systems are, are so uh, fierce that 
life becomes very, very challenging, what does yet another toy mean? So if we really love our children, if we want them to have a world to live in, again, what, is it, what does it really mean? What are we here for? Then I think we do have to stop and ask, what are the big questions? Uh, excellent. Um, either of our other panelists want to tackle that question or add to it? I'll just weigh in on what David said. I, th- I think a big question is I toured one of the uh, Mormon facilities in Utah today where they are recycling goods and things, clothing that people are donating. And it's wonderful to find work that they're doing in other agencies like Catholic Relief, Relief Agencies. But I couldn't help but think, where are these clothes coming from and why are people giving away things that oftentimes are brand new, haven't even been worn, mm-hmm. but we're kind of programmed to think you've got to buy more, buy more, buy more, and you've got to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But as David's saying, bigger isn't necessarily better, and more is not necessarily better. And a lot of times I remember hearing, you know, advertisements around the Christmas season on the radio where they say this is such a wonderful holiday season and everybody goes on and buys so many things, but then the agencies have to deal with increased depression, frustration, family violence, et cetera, after the holiday mm. season because everybody realizes it was supposed to be so great, but it wasn't. So I think thoughtful people ask questions. They look around the world and say, well, I'm, I'm kind of taught by a society that the more you have, the better. But thoughtful people in our shared religious traditions and many others are saying no more is not better. What's better is understanding the quality of life a little bit, at least mm-hmm. investigating is there another purpose of life. And if so, then actually, you know, very, it's, it's not just academic. It's a fact we can live in a much more holistically peaceful and happy environment. And I, and I think at least my tradition would advocate if we really want to clean up the world, we have to start with cleaning our hearts a little bit. And their spiritual practices, religious beliefs that help us do that. Otherwise, we kind of just go on being these overly, this machine put into fifth gear on consumption mm-hmm. without willing to stop and look around and see what the costs are. But as David said and Barbara said so eloquently, the costs are too great for us not to stop and think about things more carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, just have two or three minutes left in the conversation. Uh, so uh, uh, final thoughts. I'll start with well, uh, Margaret Barker. Uh this isn't just an intellectual exercise. This isn't just scholars in their ivory towers. I'm a Methodist preacher, and three Sundays in four, I'm in a pulpit. And what I do on my desk, I also preach from the pulpit. My experience is that, you know, the ordinary people, and I know there's no such thing as an ordinary person, but that's the expression we use. Ordinary people are very concerned about this, but they feel powerless because when you, if you have to shop in a supermarket, you have to buy what is there and they pack it in plastic, for example, and you would love to be able to buy it other than in plastic, but you do not have the opportunity. Our The churches in the little town where I live in the, in the centre of England, near the city of Derby, we have just started a campaign, Keep It Green, it's called, and our current focus is on plastic. And we have been amazed at the way local businesses have, you know, come forward to speakers, at, at, offering speakers at our meetings, saying we're worried about the amount of plastic, but it's the only way we can get our produce in. And so it goes right the way up, this feeling of being uneasy with where we all are, and people feel helpless. And we're going to have to have, I think, a grassroots revolution saying we will not buy carrots packaged in black plastic, which can't be recycled, things like this. And in the end, those who are running our great corporations actually want us to buy their stuff. If it's left rotting, 
they will have to listen. So I think that's important. And also I've been following with interest this uh, new movement of impact investment where people are being asked to look at the effect that their investments will have, not just the financial return. And I think if the great polluters find that their investors are withdrawing money from them and putting them somewhere where they don't get quite so much money back, but where they have a better conscience about it, I think the big polluters may well start to think, you know, we've got to change. Mm. Uh, final thoughts um, from, um, from Dr. Haberman. Well, I suppose if there's anything I want to say to, again, going to your imaginary listeners out there, it's just ask big questions. Um, these uh, questions such as, who am I? What is the world that I find myself in? What is the purpose of life? These aren't easy questions. They're big questions. But I would say these questions are your birthright. And we're not encouraged to ask them much. So I'm encouraging you to ask them. These mm. questions are your birthright. And uh, they're vital to human existence. And uh, Nutamadasa will give you the final word on the conversation today. Thank you. I think just think following in the footsteps of what others have said, I think it's important that everyone who's listening and all of us who are occupying some space in this world understand. I think Mother Teresa is said to have said, none of us can do great things. We can only do small things with great love. So in our relationship with the environment, it also begins with small steps. I would be remiss if I didn't mention from my religious tradition as well as a lot of scientific evidence is out that if if, a, if, a, if you want to make one step to help clean up the environment, consider a vegetarian diet because it decreases the amount of water pollution, air pollution, misuse of energy, what to speak of the lives of millions of animals and suffering that's caused. But many, many scientists have demonstrated if you want to do one thing, you know, maybe you don't recycle, maybe you don't drive a Prius as I do, but become a vegetarian. So everyone should take a look at that, at least reduce our meat consumption. It's a phenomenal, significant step we can all do to help make the world a cleaner place. Well, we're out of time. Uh, interesting discussion. Uh, thank you our, uh, to our panelists who have come in. Anuta Badasa has been with us, Dr. David Haberman and Dr. Margaret Barker. Thanks to each of you. Appreciate it. Um, they are participating uh, today in the God and Smog Challenge of Preserving Our Planet uh, discussion. It's a day-long uh, symposium put on by the Religious Studies Program in the Department of History at Utah State University. Um, it started at 9 o'clock, runs till 5 o'clock in the John M. Huntsman School of Business, Perry Pavilion, free and open to the public. Uh, so uh, our, our thanks to everyone involved. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.